All right, if you have your Bible, Psalms chapter 24, we're, gonna, we're making our way slowly. We're just doing one chapter tonight, still re- recovering a little bit from the, the awesome weekend that we had from Good Friday to, to Easter Sunday and a little bit of fog still, but we're in Psalm 24, thanks to Liam. Two, week, uh, week, or two weeks ago, he taught Psalm 23, did a great job, so thank you, Liam, for, for bringing God's Word to us that night. It was sweet. Psalm 24, a psalm of David. I'm going to read through it and then we'll go through it. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord and who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully. He shall receive a blessing from the Lord in righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, even Jacob, Selah. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Selah. And I just feel like every time I read that, just saying, Amen. This is a psalm of David. Hebrew tradition tells us that this psalm was written um, perhaps when he was bringing the Ark of the Covenant up from Kiriath Jerem into Jerusalem, bringing just the presence of the Lord to Jerusalem. Uh, Again, that's quite possibly when David wrote the psalm. We can't say for certain, but many scholars believe that. Pretty much almost every commentator or commentary I read linked up Psalm 24 with that timeline. And we're going to look at that context in just a little bit. But let's start, let's look at this verse by verse, starting in verse 1. David says, the earth, the earth is the Lord's. Isn't that good news tonight? The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. David is saying here in layman's terms, it's all his. I love it. Everything you see, you and I see in this world, it belongs to the Lord. Everything that springs up from this earth, that that gives life in this earth, it belongs to the Lord. Again, everything we see, everything you have, everything, it's his. It doesn't matter um, what anyone says. It doesn't matter what our politicians say about this world. The world belongs to one person and one person alone, God Almighty. But why does it belong to the Lord? Look at, David just lays it out really clear. I love this, verse two. Because it says, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. David says, because he created it. Like, there it is. That's why. He says he founded it upon the seas. David is saying that God has complete ownership of this world because he is the one who created it. He formed it. He found it. He established it. David, uh, um, specifically, you know, looking back to the creation account in, in Genesis 1, he remembers that third day, 
that when God was creating all things and God had the land come out of the sea and he separated the, the land from the waters and then it was then that the earth brought forth vegetation. Plants began to spring up. Trees began to bear fruit. Why again? Why did all of that happen? Because God created it so. He is the creator of all things. Again, it doesn't matter what anyone else says, what anyone else thinks about this world. It belongs to the Lord. He's in control of it. He's sovereign over his creation. We can rest in that. I think there's great hope in that, that it's like, it's not, this world isn't up to like our politicians to like maintain. Like God's ultimately in control. You know, our textbooks, like in school, and like my kids are in, you know, grade school, they can change all they want to. Governors and senators and presidents, they can have their opinions until, you know, we just turn off the TV, right? But that doesn't change the fact that this world was created, it was founded, it was sustained by one person, and that's God Almighty. And because of that, it belongs to him. It's his possession. I think of Jesus, you know, before he uh, ascended in, was it Matthew 28? He says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. From who? From God. Psalm 89, 11 says, the heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all it contains, you have founded them. Psalm 33, verse 8, let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him, for he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. The psalmist says, we should stand in awe of the creator. Now, that's the first two verses of the psalm. Before we move on, it would be easy to read this and quickly just pass over it, quickly just pass, you know, move past it. And what I mean by this is if you're like me, we read this and we can think, you think of creation, you think of the trees and you look in the forest. You know, we live in Oregon and there's a lot of trees and a lot of forests, thankfully. And you're like, oh yes, yes, he says, that, that's the Lord, man. It's his creation. He's just that, they're all his. You know, you, you, can, you can think of mountains. We, we have Mount St. Helens, a beautiful, Mount Hood is beautiful. Oh, that's, it's majestic. That's the Lord. You can drive out to the ocean and, and just see, wow, the roaring just ocean and the waves. You're like, man, I can see God's handiwork all over. It's his. That is easy to say, but I want you to notice here. David says, not just creation is the Lord. It's not just the earth. But notice this, all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. Let me ask you tonight, as we, let's get deep in conversation, how about your life? Who owns your life? Who controls your life? You know, who makes the decisions for your life? Who decides if you should take this job or that job, if you should move to this city or that city? Who decides how you spend your, your time? How, who decides if or when you should use your giftings and your, your talents that God has given you? Who, who decides that? Who decides how you should invest your treasure or if you should invest your treasure that God has entrusted to you? Do those decisions in your life also, do they belong to the Lord? Or is it just the trees? Is it just creation? Does he have authority in all areas of his creation, including our lives tonight? I was thinking about James 4, 
specifically verse 15, but I'm going to read starting in verse 13. It says, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such city and spend a year there and engage in business and make profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, he says, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. Let me just encourage you before moving on, consider the Lord in your plans. Actually, maybe more than consider. Be obedient, like listen for and follow hard after the Lord for your life. Let him into every detail of your life. Nothing is too big, clearly, but nothing's too small for the Lord. Sometimes I think we think, oh, this, this decision is insignificant. It doesn't affect a lot of people. I think the Lord wants to speak into that. So don't hurry past, you know, these, these verses with just this heady acknowledgement of just God's sovereignty in the world and not expect it to affect your life, okay? That's, I guess that's what's on my heart is because I found myself just reading through this and, oh, let's move on. To, let's get to verse three. Like, we're, we're done. It's like, man, Lord, there's something here you want to speak to me about. You want, you, want to, you want to affect my personal life and have, it, it belongs to you and just recognizing that, remembering that, that my life is his. Look at verse three. David asked this question. It's a good question. I think we all at some point ask this in our lives in some form. Who may, verse three, who may ascend into the hill of the Lord and who may stand in his holy place? Now, it's a little teaser because we're, we're gonna take a pause, a little side step, if you will. I want to set the stage here for the possible or probable context of this psalm. As I said a little bit ago, many people believe that this psalm was written for a very particular occasion. Most likely, it was the event that's described that we find in 2 Samuel chapter 6, where uh, 2 Samuel 6, 12, it'll be on the screen, says this, David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And it's kind of interesting, just two days ago, my wife is talking to me. She's on a different reading plan than the rest of us, but she's still reading through the scripture. But she's in 2 Samuel, and she was, had some questions, and we were just chatting about this story. It's actually, we're going to get into it. It's one of my favorite stories. But but as I'm sure you know, the Ark of the Covenant was the centerpiece of the tabernacle. It was a golden box that had wings over top that spread over it, the golden cherubim. And, and it symbolized the fact that God dwelt in the midst of the Israelites and his glory resided with them. That's what the Ark represented. And the ark stayed with the tabernacle, with the Israelites, as they're going through the, the wanderings of the wilderness. And, and it came to an end when it finally rested in Shiloh. But it was during the time of Eli, the priest, that the Israelites got a little superstitious, if you will. And they kind of thought that the ark, if they just took the ark into battle, it would just give them instant victory against the Philistines. And so um, just like if you thought you were you know, confident going to win the lottery, you go play. So they, that's what they did. Um, they went out, they took the ark, and... And as you can imagine, it was there that the Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant. And it was in that same battle that Eli, he had two wicked sons and they both died, uh, were killed in battle. And when Eli hears that the Ark has been captured, that his sons have been killed, he, he's sitting on a chair, he falls backwards and he dies. All of that is in 1 Samuel chapter 4. 
And it's somewhere around that same time that Eli's daughter-in-law bore a son. It was a tragic delivery, tragic labor. Um, but she gives birth to the son and names him Ichabod, which means the glory has departed. The glory has departed from Israel because Israel had lost the ark. And that was the end of an era in Israel and the beginning of a bleak, long season for the nation. And then you just flip the page, if you're in 1 Samuel 4 to 1 Samuel 5, we see that the Philistines, they just captured the ark. They try to put it in their treasury, kind of like a trophy room, if you will. They're kind of confident and cocky, like, man, our God's defeated, you know, the God of Israel, and they just wanted to show him off. And so, um, so, they put, so the Philistines put the ark in the, the same room as Dagon, in the city of Ashdod, in the temple of Dagon. And Dagon was a fish god. He was kind of a merman, right? Had the tail of a fish, and, and, but the body of a man. And again, this is where one of my favorite stories, and you guys probably know if you if you're, love the Old Testament, especially in this passage. But um, So they set him down, they go, they go to bed for the night, they come in the next morning, and Dagon, their God, is face down on the ground before the ark. Kind of comical. And so they do what anyone else does with their God that falls over. They put him back up um, on his stand or whatever, and then they leave, and then the next day they come back, and... What happens? Dagon is back, face forward. This time his like, head's off, his arms are crushed. Um, and, and it's at this point that the Philistines are like, we've got to get rid of this ark. Like, this is not happening. Like, this is not great. And so they carried the ark to Gath. Uh, the people in Gath started getting tumors and they started dying. And so they're like, well, let's, let's send it off to Ekron. And the same thing happens there. People just started dying everywhere. And so in chapter six uh, of 1 Samuel, after seven months of this, or yeah, seven months of this, the Philistines, they're consulting their, their priests about, hey, what do we do with this ark? Like at this point, they're just like, we've got to get rid of it. Like it's, it's not turning out how we thought it was going to turn out, like trophy room kind of esque. Like this is, this is going bad for us. And so what do they do? They, they put it on a cart along with kind of a peace offering, if you will. And they strap it to the cart they, with two cows and they sent it away. And in 1 Samuel 6 and 9, the priests uh, of the Philistines told the people this, watch, they said, if it goes up on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it, then it is the God of Israel who has done this, us this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it's not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by coincidence, by chance. And so they turned the cart loose. They, they let it go. And, and in verse 12, it tells us, the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway, um, lowing as they went, and they turned neither to the right or to the left. In other words, it was the hand of God. And so that's how the Israelites got the ark back. And I, and I wish I can say the story was over from there and, and it was just smooth sailings. But, but a tragedy strikes there at Beth Shemesh. As soon as the ark arrives there on the cart, the men of that city, they opened up the ark which was a no-no. You don't touch the ark. Strictly forbidden. That's Numbers chapter 4. The penalty, if you did, was death. And so the Lord that day killed 70 men in that city. They didn't heed the word of the Lord and they paid the consequences. It was their life. Now, on the screen, 1 Samuel 6.20 says this, The men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God, and to whom shall he go up from us? You know, it's kind of interesting about this verse. It's, it's the same question that's raised here in verse 3 of Psalm 24. 
Let me read it again in, in verse 3. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord and who may stand in his holy place? In other words, he, he's just asking us, who can stand before God? So many Philistines had died because of the ark, and now this great slaughter has just taken the Israelites, the Israelite people in Beth Shemesh, and people were, were getting the idea that the ark, is it this dangerous thing? They're wondering, is, is it dangerous? And so what happens in, in 1 Samuel 7 is that the men of Kiriath-Jerim, they came and they took the ark and they brought it to Abinadab and they consecrated the son of Eliezer to have charge of the ark of the Lord. And then from that day forward, the ark just stayed there for some 20 years. 20 years, think about this. Those 20 years, Israel's just in backsliding, in rebellion, in apostasy. And for 20 years, we're told that Israel lamented after the Lord disobedience. But after the 20 years, Samuel says to them in 1 Samuel 7, 3, if you return to the Lord with all your heart, remove foreign gods and the Asherah from among you, Asherah from among you, and direct your hearts to the Lord and serve him alone, he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. And the rest of chapter 7 describes how Israel returns to the Lord. And it was there that they finally were delivered from the Philistines. And then what's interesting is nothing else is said about the ark until 2 Samuel 6. We don't really find out much. So turn in your Bibles if you have them to 2 Samuel chapter 6. It'll be on the screen too, but it's always good to move around, blow the dust off. We come to this time in David's life, a full century potentially, after the ark was returned by the Philistines. 2 Samuel 6, 1. Now David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him to Baal Judah. That's just another name for Kiriath Jerim. To bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name the very name of the Lord of hosts who is enthroned above the cherubim. And so David, he wants to bring the ark back to Jerusalem because it's there where, where you know, his son Solomon is eventually going to build the temple, the permanent temple for worship, to be this symbolic dwelling place of the Lord. That's where it rightfully belonged in the first place. Notice what happens. The ark has been, Kiriath Jerem, some say a hundred years from the beginning of Saul's or Samuel's time until the, the reign of David's peak. Notice verse 3. It says, they place the ark of God on a new cart. Again, this is a serious mistake. If you remember Moses, he gave a specific instructions how the ark was to be transported. It wasn't to be on a cart. It wasn't to, um, the Kohathites were the ones who were actually supposed to carry this ark. They weren't supposed to touch it. They were we're supposed to carry it by its poles. And, and so instead of having the Kohathites come and carry the ark, as instructed by Moses, they decide, hey, well, the Philistines, I mean, I'm interpreting it, they're, you know, their mindset in this. Well, the Philistines put it on a cart. Well, at least we're putting it on a new cart. Like we're kind of, we're doing, we're doing one, we're up one-upping them. Like let's at least, you know, yeah, let's at least make it on a new cart. It's not going to fall apart. And look what happens. Verse 5 of 2 Samuel chapter 6. There was great celebration. Meanwhile, David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with all kinds of instruments made of fir wood and with lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And so what you have here is just this grand celebration, this, this scene of great joy, music, laughter. The NIV says that they were celebrating with all their might before the Lord. 
Now, I don't think as Americans we kind of get that, like in, in, the, you know, in the church, but just celebrating what God has done. The presence of the, of the Lord is back. Celebration filled their worship. And again, I wish it would, the story could be over, but then tragedy again. Look at verse 6. But when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out toward the ark of God and took hold of it. Uh-oh. For the oxen nearly upset it, and the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah, and God struck him down there for his irreverence, and he died there by the ark of God. And things just came to a halt. Stop. We're not going any farther. David responds in verse A, first with anger and then with fear. David became angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And so David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? And David was unwilling to move the ark of the Lord into the city of David with him. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And that's where the ark remained for three more months. Now, if you can just imagine, if you're this guy, Obed-Edom, the ark's now at your house. You just got the track record. The last few months haven't been so great. The last few years haven't been so great. You're like, I don't know if I want this here, but I love this. We're told that it becomes this great source of blessing for the family there. It doesn't tell us how God blessed him specifically, but he blessed him. And so when David finds out that the ark, it's bringing blessing to, to Obed-Edom. Like he forgets all about his fear. He forgets all about his anger. He goes up there, let's bring it back. He goes, he gets the ark. And in verse 12, he, he goes with gladness. And verse 14 tells us that in this place, David dances once again before the Lord with all of his might. This is the very event that, again, a lot of Old Testament scholars believe was the scene for Psalm 24. So go back to Psalm 24. David, again, verse, verse, first two verses has just said, the earth and everything in it, everyone in it belongs to the Lord. It's his creation. He's in control. He is sovereign over it all. He's holy. And now in light of who God is, David raises that question in verse 3 of Psalm 24. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord and who may stand in his holy place? David's asking who is worthy now to stand before the Lord in worship? Who is it? Keep in mind that this psalm is being sung by people who are coming off of a very tragic and traumatic experience of seeing Uzzah just dead right there on the spot as he's trying to mishandle the cart. These people are well aware of the many Philistines who had died. A lot of people in Beth Shemesh who, uh, Shemesh who had died because they handled the, the ark carelessly. And so they're asking the same question. The, the men of Beth Shemesh asked in, in, in 1 Samuel 6.20, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And that's the same one David has here in verse 3. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? And David, look at verse 4, gives an answer to it. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully. David says, only the righteous are qualified to stand before God and worship him. And listen, the same question 
and answer applies to us tonight. You may ask, how, how may I be made right with God? How may I stand before God in favor, not in fear? Right? I want his favor. Not, not, I don't want to be afraid of him. How can I come into the presence of God? How can I stand before him and be received by him? David again gives the answer in verse 4. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood, who has not sworn deceitfully. David Gutzig says this in his commentary that this verse is speaking of a man or a woman who is pure in both their actions, their hands, and their intentions, their heart. This one can ascend the hill of the Lord and stand in his holy presence. David says, you want to approach the presence of, the, of a holy God, you better have clean hands. Your hands better be clean. There better not be any blood shed on your hands. But he doesn't just stop. Notice this. He doesn't just stop at the external. Because on the outside, we can fake things. We can fake holiness. We can fake righteousness. But he adds, notice, those who also have a pure heart. Charles Spurgeon, I love this, said this. Only clean hands would not suffice unless they were connected with a pure heart. True religion is heart work. We may wash the outside of the cup and the platter as long as we please, but if the inward parts be filthy, we are filthy altogether in the sight of God, for our hearts are more truly ourselves than our hands are. We may lose our hands and yet live, but we could not lose our heart and still live. The very life of our being lies in the inner nature and hence the imperative need of purity within. There must be a work of grace in the core of the heart as well as in the palm of the hand or our religion is a delusion. Clean hands in a purity of heart. And then he says, and those who have not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully. Who can approach God? This is the question. One who does not lift up their souls to falsehood. Maybe your translation says to idols or emptiness, the Hebrew would pinpoint in on. The idea is just chasing after things of this world, trying to find satisfaction, trying to find fulfillment and things that just do not satisfy. So again, how can we approach God? How can we be made right before God? He says, clean hands. That's innocent of actions that go against God. Pure heart. It's the heart that matters. You, can't, you can fake it on the outside, right? But where's your heart at? And those who would not throw themselves at the worthless things of this world to find meaning and happiness to keep yourself from lying, swearing deceitfully. He says, you do these things, you're in. Come before the Lord. Come before the Lord. But there's one problem. As I'm going through this, there's one problem that I see in my own life. If I'm honest with you tonight, I look at this list. Do you know what I see? A guilty verdict. <laughs> I see, oh no. Oh my gosh. Oh, I might be clean outwardly. I might be able to fool everyone with my actions, but how about my heart? That's why Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount would constantly be bringing issues back to the heart level. He would say, do not murder, right? You've heard it said, do not murder. But I say to you, man, you have hatred in your heart. It's as good as you've committed the, the, the sin, the crime. I, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I say to you, it's getting after the heart. You lust after a woman in your heart. You committed the act. The heart matters to God. Listen, you can fool me. 
You can fool our whole pastoral staff. You can fool your spouse with clean hands, but you cannot fool God with an impure heart. And I can say the same about my life. I can fool you all with clean hands on the outside, but I cannot fool God with an impure heart. That's the bad news tonight. That's the bad news. The people hearing this, this checklist, and they're living under the old covenant, they're probably feeling a little desperate, a little anxious. They're sweating a little bit. They're like, okay, oh man, like the ark, you know, the ark of God is gone. And for 20 years, they're chasing idols. They're running away from God. Their hands are dirty. Their hearts are impure. And, and maybe you're there tonight. Maybe you're like, you've been chasing after the things of the world. You know you're not pure totally in your heart. But here's the good news for you and I. God has established a new and better covenant through the person and work of Jesus Christ. There is only one person in all of history, the history of the world, who truly fulfills the requirements of verse 4, and that's Jesus the Messiah. He alone is the only one that has clean hands and a pure heart and does not lift up his soul to what is false or swears deceitfully. You know, it reminds me of of Revelation 5, that picture where John begins to weep because it seems like no one in all of heaven or earth will be found worthy. And in in Revelation 5, 5, John writes, one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Listen, Christ alone is worthy. Christ alone is able to do what no other person in this world can do for you. Christ alone is able to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. And for you and I tonight, what is the correct answer to the question in verse 3? You know, who can ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who can stand in his holy place? Only one man. That's Jesus Christ. He alone has clean hands and a pure heart. And if you're here tonight and you do not know Jesus and haven't committed your life to him or you don't think you have, Oh, you might be here in church, right? You might be trying your hardest to to clean up, right? To, To wash off your hands, to purify your heart. Listen, only those who are united with Jesus, united with him, clothed in his righteousness, his rightness, his perfection, who are whose hands are washed clean by his blood and whose hearts are purified by that blood, only they can ascend to the hill of the Lord and stand in his holy place. And the only ground on which we stand is not on our own righteousness, but on his. In other words, the only way we can come boldly before the throne of grace and come before the Lord and be accepted by God is by being in Christ. It's the only way. And when you say, when we say yes to Jesus in our lives, for, for you, if you're here tonight, you're a believer, you know this to be true. We believe in him for our salvation. What happens? Look at verse five. He shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Again, it's not your righteousness. It's his righteousness. We don't have, remember, we don't have clean hands. We don't have a pure heart. Isaiah says our righteousness are like filthy rags. Paul Paul would consider it as like cow manure. That's our righteousness. We desperately need the righteousness of Jesus to cleanse us, to purify us. 
and his work on the cross, what we celebrated last Friday, cleanses us, the Bible says, from all unrighteousness, from all of our wrongdoings. And he's able to forgive our sins, to make us new. So Paul would write in Corinthians, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature, creation. The old has passed away, right? All things have become new. This is the work that only Jesus can do. Look at verse six. This is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, even Jacob. Selah. Remember Selah. Pause for a moment before moving on. And we could just pause there for a long time, actually. But meditate on that. Not only are we found righteous because of what Jesus alone has done, but there's a blessing. Notice this. For those of you tonight, you're a believer. There is a blessing for us when it doesn't just stop there on the day of justification, but we continue to pursue and seek hard after him. To seek the face of God on a daily basis. And that's my prayer for us, that we would seek him. That we'd have a desire to seek his face. Let's look at the last part of this chapter, starting in verse 7. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. And then he repeats himself for emphasis again. Hebrew poetry, lift up in verse 9. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Say law again. Pause for a moment. Slow down. Meditate on that. He is the king of glory. There's so much that can be said about that section, but let me say this as we close. When God, listen, when God is welcomed with open gates and open doors, he is pleased to come in. He wants to come in. I think of Jesus in Revelation 3 where he's pleading with his people. He says, behold, I stand at the door and I knock. If you hear, right, if you hear my voice and you open the door, Jesus says, I will come in and I will dine with him and he with me. That's the heart of God. Jesus promises if you open the door to your heart, he will come in. The question is sung, who is this king of glory? Their response, the Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. I love that. Many commentators said this was written for a cantor and the choir to sing together, or the chief musician and, and the choir, like a responsive reading. So when a question is asked, or maybe it's perhaps sung here by the voice of a single person, the lead singer in modern terms, then the response is given, most likely by the choir. And if you could just picture this, the ark is being brought into the city, taken to its final you know, resting place, the, the site of the future temple. This is the song they sing. The choir would start, lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. And, the, and then the, the, the worship leader, I would say, would say this, well, who is this king of glory? And the, the choir would respond, it's the Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. And then all of the voices would join again. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory would come in. And then, then the worship leader would say, who is this king of glory? And they would resolve with saying one last time, the Lord of hosts, he is the king of glory. Amen to that. It's all about Jesus, the king, the true king of glory. Listen, this is all about God's goodness and his grace. 
This is what Jesus has done for us, what we could never do for ourselves. He is the king of glory. He is strong and mighty. He has made a way so that you and I can be made right with God. Are you grateful for that? Are you grateful for that? That's why Hebrews says in Hebrews 4, the author, says, let us then with confidence, with boldness, draw near to the throne of grace. We're not afraid anymore. We go confidently to the throne of grace where we find mercy, right? We receive mercy and grace in our time of need. That's the relationship that he has for us, that he's done for us, that God through Jesus has done what we could never do. So look to Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, tonight as we worship you, as we spend some time in worship, I pray for my brothers and sisters. I pray for my own heart. Lord, that we would just be stirred once again by Jesus, what you've done for us. Even as we're just coming off of a Good Friday and a Resurrection Sunday um, weekend, that this would not, this truth about what Jesus has done for us would not leave us that it would be on our hearts and that we would meditate on it, that we would be stirred by it. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would minister, that you would speak to hearts wherever they're at tonight. I just pray, God, that you would be the lifter of their head, that you would minister, that you would speak life, you speak hope, whatever they need. As we worship you, as we wait on you, God, would you just meet us in this place? In Jesus' name.